All right, so this is our last go at with Isaiah. Um, this is session 13, God Restores. We'll be in Isaiah 65. Um, we'll be looking at 17 through 25 this morning. Um, it's been a good run through Isaiah. Hopefully you've learned a few things, gained a, some insight into some stuff. Next week, we will start with Luke. So we'll jump to the New Testament and begin there, uh, looking at the book of Luke itself. This section, this last uh, part of uh, Isaiah, he's going to pull together everything he's been talking about in the whole book. And as I've studied Isaiah for this as well, um, it mirrors the book of Revelation. Um, It really does. Just as Revelation starts off with the condemnation of the seven churches, Isaiah starts off condemning the nation of Israel. And then he moves to, you know, the more broad... um, judgments of all the nations and everything, just as the middle part of uh, Revelation does. I mean, it gets into judging the world and all the wars and all that. I mean, it's very detailed. Isaiah is not nearly as detailed about what's going to happen, but to whom it's going to happen to. As he names all the nations and what they did and why they're being punished, etc., etc. And then we come to the end, and just as Revelation ends with the coming kingdom that God is going to return, that he's going to rebuild and all that. We're going to see this morning that God is going to restore. So this is God restores. He's going to restore, but he's not just talking about Israel here either. It's much broader than that. So with that, we'll uh, jump in and start with Isaiah 65 verses... um, 17 through 20. Somebody will read those for us. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be gladness. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and crying of distress. And more shall be Shall there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days? For the young shall die a hundred years old, and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. All right, thanks. Um, this starting word, for behold, that's, that's awkward English by, <laughs> for all. Uh, the Hebrew word there is, it, it's... It's a complex word. It's more like because, but because is usually related to the previous clause or sentence, right? Well, in Hebrew, the word here means, okay, everything that I've said before, this is why. So everything previous in the book of Isaiah, all the stuff that he's already been talking about, Because of all of that, 
I create a new heaven and earth. So everything, so when you understand that, it's not just the immediate passage before this or sentence. He's talking about the entire idea of the book of Isaiah. Because of all that you've done, the sin of Israel that's laid out in the early chapters, and because of the sin of all the nations that he lists over and over and over again in those beginnings, because of all that, because of the suffering servant, because he comes and suffers and all that, I create a new heaven and a new earth. That's why I said this, it mirrors, this is the revelation, book of Revelation in the Old Testament, if you will. John gives us a much clearer picture of what it's going to look like. But Isaiah gives us our first view, I think, of this. And the former things shall not be remembered, all of that. What is he doing? As we look at this passage, um, this is part of the outline nine, the program of peace. And it's a place of joy. God is going to create a place of joy. Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a, what does it say? A joy. The whole purpose of this new Jerusalem, which we know as we jump to the New Testament, it, there's going to be there's detailed directions about how the new Jerusalem is going to be built, laid out, what we're going to do there. But here Isaiah tells us it's going to be a joy. It's going to be a place of peace. Why? Why does he need to create it anew? Yeah, sin ruined it. Mankind sinned and ruined everything that God created. I mean, do we realize that? Do we ever take that into account? He has to recreate everything because it's, everything is corrupted. Which means perfecting this world, getting, fixing it, making it right is not possible. It's going, it requires a new creation. Both here in the Old Testament, that idea was conferred by God to the Israelites, and in the New Testament to the church. We spent a lot of time, money, and effort worrying about this world in the most recent days. Um, as we just saw, if you haven't been paying attention to the news, I think it was Saturday morning, Biden released who his... Um, Cabinet members will be for the ecology and um, all of that. And he's looking to quickly make up for all the destruction that Trump has done to um, nature by pulling us out of all those treaties and not paying all that money to the UN for carbon admissions. I mean, yeah, all of that. He's going to have a bold program. Time, money, effort is being spent to fix a world that's going to be recreated in its perfection. That recreation, though, is going to have a purpose. It, it's going to offer us something this world doesn't. And what is it? Joy. Joy, yeah. 
Joy and gladness. That, that's, that, that's a huge thing. When we look at this world, its purpose is to give us joy and gladness. Are we looking for it in the wrong place? This is the time of joy, gladness, peace. You know, that's kind of all the words we use for Christmas. Can we find it in this world? Can we find it in the things here? Not permanently. Not permanently, yeah. No matter what we open on Christmas morning, it's a fleeting joy. It's a fleeting gladness. The ultimate gift is when he gives us a restored earth. The interesting thing is, is that it's not just our joy and gladness, is it? If you look down verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. God is going to have joy. He is going to have gladness with us in this new Jerusalem. It's not just ours, but his. He's not doing this just for us. He's doing it for himself, too. We're his. We're going to be his joy and gladness. It's not that we offer it to him. It's nothing we do. It's what he does for himself. He creates this place that we will have peace and joy, and gladness, and he's going to see it and be glad and have joy. That's interesting, isn't it? That's a little different than the normal rhetoric you get with, with religion. We, we have to do the right things and, and all that. We have to make him happy. Well, this clearly indicates what's going to make God happy is creating a place that's perfect and happy for us. Let that sink in. Enjoying life. That's what God wants from us. When we enjoy life, that makes him happy. That gives him joy. Well, that's a lot like parents. Because parents, when they're happy when their kids, when they make their kids happy. Yeah. Sure, when your kids are happy and they, they open that, that thing on Christmas morning that you know they didn't, they didn't know they were going to get, they didn't think about it, and they're like, oh, and their faces light up and they get that, that brilliance about them. Yeah. That's going to be us when he recreates the world, when he recreates Jerusalem and he shows it to us, okay, this is your place to live. We're going to be the kids, going, wow, really? We get to keep this? <laughs> you ever give your kids a puppy? <laughs> oh, my word. That minute. Now, it, it only lasts until it wets on the floor <laughs> and they have to go get a towel to clean it up or whatever, but yeah. <laughs> but that's what we're talking about a place of joy. This is not going to be. This new Jerusalem is not just a joy for us, but it's a joy for God. Everything he does is a labor of love for us so that he can see our joy and bring him gladness. All right. Comments, questions? It's a great, great Christmas ending to this book. 
But this is revelation too. Um, we, we get caught up in all the judgment and everything that's there, which is in Isaiah too. We don't get caught up in the judgment there, do we? We, we get caught up in the ser- suffering servant. We, we like that. Yeah, go ahead. Do those that say there's a second Isaiah say the second Isaiah and John were in cahoots in writing Revelation in this second half? No, no, because they don't put the two together. Um, it, it, it's, a rare, it's a rare commentary or that, that starts to put these two together, which, as I've studied through them, it's more than obvious to me. I don't know why uh, it hasn't been more obvious to others that there's John, or just as the New Testament talks about his first and second coming, Isaiah refers to first and second comings here without saying it. Isaiah had no idea. He just knew that, that this one was coming from the Father who would be this servant. He would suffer. He would do all these things, and he just writes them down. And we get the understanding because Jesus himself told us that, I, that I'm going to come again, and this is what I'm going to do. My first coming was like this. My second coming is like that. We can come and apply that to Isaiah. But beyond looking at it in terms of his either suffering or his birth, we don't really look at the rest of Isaiah, and I don't understand why. You have, we, we need to look at it in terms of Revelation. We get a lot of weird stuff out there about the book of Revelation, usually because they only look at it by itself, or they start to incorporate the weird stuff out of Daniel and Ezekiel. But you got to go to Isaiah, too, because Isaiah writes about it, and he's got a much different uh, perspective than either of them because he's not looking at the details. He's looking at the reasons why. Isaiah lines, outlines exactly why God has got to do what he's going to do and how he solves the problem. But that's a study for its own time. I mean, that's an entire eschatological uh, thing. We're not, we're not there. All right, moving on. Uh, Isaiah 65, 21 through 23. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Before they nope, die, that's it. Oh, sorry. Um, okay, this last part, I want to uh, uh, point out that it's an ideal. He isn't talking about people actually having children in heaven. We don't know. There, there are those who, who draw from this uh, many of the strange that, that, well, okay, the Mormons pull that, you know, if you have your spouse in heaven and you're going to have more children and, and all this. This is where they get it from, and that's not Isaiah's point here. His point is describing a place using language that everybody understands. We can't imagine perfection. It's beyond us. Um, our sinful nature makes it that we can't imagine what it would be like there. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Matrix. Apparently, in the, in they, when they created the first Matrix, it was too perfect. And, and every, people died from it. They couldn't comprehend it. Uh, and th- there's this whole thing that, where he's talking to Morpheus, the, the machine. And he goes on about how they, we don't possess the, I, the ability to comprehend 
perfection. We, we measure life by tragedy or, you know, disaster or whatever. The reality is, is we, we, it's not that we don't, we measure by tragedy. We measure life by what happens and the march of time, which is a tragedy. We were meant to be eternal beings. We were meant to be in a state of perfection uh, in communication with ourselves, with each other, and with God and all that. And all of that was broken. I mean, it's not just that we, we're not capable of it. It's, it's a broken aspect. It's what happened at the fall. And so I, he's trying to explain it. And so I don't think that we can go, yeah, we're going to have children. It's going to be like this. This is what he's describing perfection will be. Um, but we can see a few things here that are, are likely true because we know from other places. Uh, creation itself. We were put in the garden. Adam was in perfection and he was going to work. We know that the problem with work today is that it's cursed. It's The curse is going to be lifted. They will build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit. Um, the idea is that we're, we're, there's still going to be work to do. Um, that's true from the beginning. Adam was created to work. He was given jobs and tasks. Um, the future is going to be that we're, gonna, we're not just going to sit. This idea that we're going to be little cherubs sitting on clouds with harps, strumming them all day long. I, I don't know where that I don't know where that came from. Well, yeah, but you look Tom at the world. Huh? Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry. But you, you look, that's one of the world's complaints, isn't it? Why would I want to go to heaven? It's going to be boring. I want to go to hell with all the other people because we're going to party and enjoy life down there. Well, that's not true. Heaven is going to be a place of joy and peace, but it means that I get to enjoy my work. Uh, the taxes, there aren't going to be taxes. You're not going to work so that other people don't have to. That's what, that's what he's describing here. They shall not build in another inhabit. That's what was happening back then. Guess what? It's still happening today. Other, Assyria and Babylon, what did they do? They came and made those countries like Israel and Syria and all that. They were tribute countries. Their job was to send huge sums of gold to the king or emperor so that they didn't have to work. You did all the work. They collected all the stuff and you got whatever was left over. And he's saying, no, you're going you're gonna to work. You're going to take care of yourself. You get to enjoy whatever it is you create. It's not a socialist construct. This is probably the biggest argument for capitalism. You keep whatever it is that you make. And yeah, there's no, yeah, there's, well, you don't need any politicians. This new, this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and earth, both in Revelation here, it is going to be a place of prosperity. We are going to get to live our lives well. We will work, and we will get to have the fruits of our work. And the biggest thing, and this, this is, I can't emphasize this enough, it's no longer going to be cursed. Childbirthing was cursed. Work was cursed. All these things were cursed, and that's what Isaiah is communicating. That curse is going to be lifted. Those things are, not, are going to be restored to the way it was supposed to be, in this new Jerusalem. 
Whether we have children or not is, is beyond our ability to know. Uh, I don't think that's the, again, I don't think that's what they're trying to communicate here. Um, they're, they're talking about the curses being lifted. The, the whole point of this world is that it's cursed and it's going to be removed. Um, I don't know that we could hope for anything better. We will finally fulfill that which God gave mankind to fulfill, which was to work the garden and fill the earth with, you know, going forth and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We filled the earth. I mean, when we created again, all the dead people are going to be back. The dead, and, the dead are going to rise. So the earth is going to be full. We, we're going to have all that. And it's going to be an amazing place. And it, the idea is that we're not going to have to worry about, well, what about all those poor people? What about all the people that can't, you know? Do, no, they're going, to, they're going to be able to do. There'll be a place for them. Uh, this was big news for Israel as Isaiah is writing this because the land was given to them. I mean, that, that, was, that was the crux of being an Israelite was you had a place that God gave you. There was land. The whole point of the year of Jubilee was that you got the land back that belonged to your family. Well, God's going to recreate it and everybody's going to have whatever part is theirs. Um, I think that's part of what he talks about doling out rewards that Paul talks about in the last judgments and all that. We're going to get places. It's not wealth in terms that we think. In the modern world, we think in terms of dollar signs. But to the people from the Far East and the Middle East, land, water, and children were the, were the big values and commodities. If you had children, uh, you know, you were wealthy. Uh, to have people to pass it on because the, that, but we won't need that. We'll be eternal. So we won't need children to pass on what we have. But water and land rights will be a big deal. And we will get to keep them. Their tax man will not be coming around uh, for it. What does God need with taxes, right? He already has all the money. He could go up and dig out some payment if he needs it, right? Yeah, um, and all that. Like I said, this is, this is the awesomeness of this book. As we come to the end, it's so much like Revelation, and it gives us a much broader idea of what's going on, not just all the, the death and destruction that we see there. Comments or questions before we move on? Oh, one more. Isaiah 65, 24 through 25. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Okay, again, here we have this idea. I, I don't know. Maybe they really will, this really will occur. But the animals have always been the animals. Uh, if you notice, if you go back to the fall, the animals were not cursed. Uh, the snake was cursed that he was going to be, but that, we know that was specifically Satan. But the idea that the lamb will and the wolf will graze together, it's, it, it's an idea of peace. It's an idea that how well they're going to get together. We've talked about this before. 
I don't know that lions are going to eat straw. They don't have the digestive system for it. They certainly don't have the teeth for it. It's the idea here that he's trying to communicate um, in this. Uh, they shall not hurt. They shall not destroy. Um, I, yeah, he's talking about a, a, this idea of a place of peace. This peace is going to be with God. We will have peace with God. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. When man fell, God came down and spoke to man and cursed him. And our relationship was now broken. He was no longer, I mean, Adam was supposed to be a friend. You know, as we look through scripture, Abraham is actually the friend that Adam was supposed to be with God. The relationship between Abraham and God, it wasn't really close, but it was closer than it was with anybody else. As we look at, at Adam, Adam didn't seem to have the relationship with God that he was supposed to. We don't know why. We don't know what transpired or happened, but that relationship, once it broke, there was nothing there, and we see it with God. We don't see the obedience that we see in Noah in Adam either. There was what we, we were supposed to obey. We were supposed to do what God said. There's Noah, all those hundreds of years, building an ark, doing what God said to do, even though it made no sense. And we, we see the obedience there, but we don't see it back there. When he created Adam, all of those things were supposed to be what he was doing. But Adam didn't last long and was swayed by the ideals of the snake and his wife, and he falls. And so God became our judge, and uh, we couldn't, he couldn't hear us. He, I mean, we required us to sacrifice, to become right with him for a moment so that he would hear our prayers and all of that, the whole sacrificial system that he created was so that there could be a relationship. And now... Now, with the new heaven, the new earth, with the cleansing that comes from the suffering servant as he takes the place and we're restored to that spot and now can have that relationship, we'll have peace with God. We're no longer at war with him. The idea that the lion and the lamb will lay down together. I mean, let's face it, God's the lion, we're the lamb. I mean, he could just wipe us away just as the lion can do that. All of that's going to change that our whole relationship, I don't think we can even begin to understand what that's going to look like as we have a new relationship. Because even today, sin is still in our way. We've not been perfected. Um, and we do have good relationship with God, but it's going to be even more amazing um, that he will answer before we even finish speaking. It's going to be like that. Also, there'll be peace with man. The one thing this world is desperate for is peace. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Uh, war is uh, a creation of the fall. And it's going to end. When we see others... Uh, the. I don't know what that relationship's going to be like. I mean, I have friends. We have relationships with each other that are close, but they're still fallen. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? 
to every person you know and meet is going to be a close relationship, a perfect communication. There won't be misunderstanding. Uh, it's, it's beyond, I think, our comprehension of interacting on such a manner with people. If we look to the garden, they were so perfect and so pure, they didn't even wear clothing and nobody cared. They didn't even understand, they didn't have a concept for it. It's something they got when they ate the fruit. That's when all that, I mean, we, we're, we'll have such connection with each other that those become irrelevant. Can you imagine? The depth to which we have fallen, we don't understand. All that this is about, as we close up Isaiah here, all was lost in the garden, will be restored. That's what this new creation is. It's a reset to what he did. This is kind of a sidetrack from God, what God wanted. He created the world, put man in it, and it was supposed to march on. We failed. We, we messed it up. And we took this long track around to get back to where he wants. A world full of people. Well, he managed to pull that one off. But we don't have the peace, the joy. It, it's not the bountiful place that, that he wanted us to live in. It's a place of misery, uh, sickness, and disease, and all that. It's a place with broken relationships. Not just between us and God, but us and the nature. I mean, there's just, you know, we, we, we're not doing well with that. And us and each other. Um, we're, we're not... Relationships with God, with man, with oneself, I mean, we don't even like ourselves, will be set back to day one in creation where God created man in his image. And we will be restored to that and move forward from there. Um, we'll have to come up with a new numbering system because it, it'll last for eternity. <laughs> and we, you know, I don't know, I don't know that we'll even measure time. I mean, we only think in terms of time. I can't imagine what it would be like to have eternity to uh, sit on my brother's deck and just enjoy each other's company on an afternoon watching the sunset for eternity. What would that be like? Uh, it's beyond my ability. So some takeaways from this. This is the hope that believers have. When we talk about having hope as Christians, when we look at what's going on in the world, this very thing that Isaiah is writing about is our hope. And it's not a hope as in, well, I, I, I hope this bridge holds me. No, this is a hope that we know because God has promised us that we just read it. It's there. He says he's going to do it. And everything else that he's told us, he's done. He has accomplished. He has you know, made it so, and he will this. It's a guaranteed hope. We know that it's going to happen. Secondly, this is our confidence in God. Why do we, why do we care what God thinks? Why do we follow God? Why do we show up here? Whether it's four feet of snow or whatever, why do we get together? Why do we help each other out? Why do we do any of this? Because we have confidence in God. He's going to make everything right. He's going to do for us. And people are like, oh, you're just looking to pie in the sky. It's not pie in the sky when it's guaranteed. 
We have everything in Scripture that he has done over and over. I'm going to do this, and he does it. And I'm going to do this, and he does it. Now we're here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to remake Jerusalem. I'm going to remake the earth. It's going to be a perfect place. And you're going to live in it. And you're going to have joy. You're going to have gladness. And I'm going to have joy watching you enjoy. That's, that's our confidence in God. And it's not, it's not blind. It's not pie in the sky, idealism. Uh, what's wrong with pie in the sky? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't mind some pie in the sky. I like pie. I like pie. I like pie. It is. As we look at this, this is our expectation in the afterlife. The going idea now is there is no afterlife. Uh, academia has searched with the biggest microscopes, the longest telescopes, and it says there's nothing after this life. We can't find anything. We can't measure it. We can't detect it. We can't determine it. As believers, this is, this is our expectation. And we have confidence because guys like Isaiah wrote it and they had no idea of all the science. They had no idea. They, they had no ulterior motive. He's reporting from God. He is writing from God to us for the simple purpose of communicating what God is planning to do. He wanted us to know because we can't see it, we can't detect it, no matter how good our microscopes get, how good our telescopes get, or our radioscopes, or whatever other device we might invent to look at stuff, it is outside our sphere to be able to see God. So he has come down and he has told us, he has given us this information. We know that it's true because 2,000 years ago, he was born in a manger. He was born of the virgin. It was proclaimed by the angels, seen by the shepherds on the side. He grew. He showed up in Jerusalem, performed ridiculous number of miracles in front of thousands and thousands of people. And nobody else could do them. Nobody could understand them. And he told us why he came and how he came. And said, now I'm going to make preparations to do this, to create new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth in perfection, the way it was meant to be, so that I can place those of you who believe in me in there. That is our expectation in the afterlife. We were told that it would happen. And it's not some ancient scrolls that some guy looked at with special glasses or that some alien came along and determined or some guy sitting who meditated for 40 days and didn't eat and, and whatever and saw visions and all. No, he was a real life and blood person who came and told us. Isaiah told us. He was a life and blood person who said, God told me to tell you that this is going to happen. And then he did. And Jesus came, he did all the things. He was the suffering servant, just as he talked about. It happened, and now he's gone, and we have this hope. Our confidence and our expectation in the second coming where he will recreate everything. Isn't that amazing? All that wrapped up in one 
book of Isaiah, just as it was in Revelation. Okay. Wow. Questions, comments before we close? Maybe a question. I don't yeah. have a question or a comment. And you can have both. I'm not a Calvinist and I'm not an Arminianist either. I'm not. I'm in the middle, somewhere in the middle of all of that is Jesus. But it makes me wonder when you were talking about, you know, what makes us do what we do, come here to be with each other, our fellowship, and, you know, honor God and all that. It makes me wonder. You know, there's, and there's people out there, in all of their life they've been witness to, and they still have their hand up. I don't want to hear it. Go away. Get out of my face with that. Does God put that in the hearts of some? Like, was Calvin wondering about that when he came up with his whole five points of the tool thing? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, it makes you wonder. I don't know that, that I don't know how it works, but there are people who just really don't want anything to do with God. They, they, it, it is, it's inconceivable to us who have dedicated everything that we are and have to Him to see somebody who would be the exact opposite. But that's where the freedom of choice comes that if we really have the freedom to choose, then we have to have the freedom to say we don't want God at all, under any circumstance, in any case. But when Calvin was talking about the elect, was that what was going through his head? I I don't know why Calvin Calvin framed it that way. Um, A lot of, if you actually read Calvin's writings, I don't think that he was a five-point Calvinist, as we understand it today. Uh, I I mean, I've met five-point Calvinists who don't believe that there's any need for missions. Because the elect will be elected regardless of what we do. So therefore, it's a waste of time, money, and effort. And yet, Jesus himself said, go into all the world preaching and teaching my message. If we didn't need to do that, he wouldn't have told us and made it a command. I mean, his last command. I mean, the guy's rising into heaven and his last words to the 12 that he loved was that very command. Uh, so, I, yeah, I don't, I, Calvin did believe in missions. I don't think, I, I think that now that we're several hundred years removed from him, that they have perverted his ideal um, to something that isn't what he really meant um, with it. So I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's when we get to heaven, we'll know. <laughs> then it won't matter. Well, yeah, then it, then it won't matter. Um, there are people who really want no parts of God. They, they really disdain the ideal of him. Yeah. And he's going to deal with all of them. Well, and, uh, you know, a lot of them, I think, are, are these people who want to control and rule men in this world. Lenin, Stalin. I mean, we, we look at guys like that, but they're the extreme end because they were able to gain power. But there are guys in business who rule their department in a large corporation just as Mao and Stalin and, and I mean, those guys, if they were given that level of power, they wouldn't be any different. I mean, they have, they have no desire for anything 
from their fellow man except to grind it. I mean, that's the whole point of... I love the movie Ebenezer Scrooge, um, The Christmas Carol. He wanted nothing from anybody except his due, his money, what was owed him. Uh, he wanted nothing to do with God. He wanted nothing to do with man. He was there to crank it up, and he didn't enjoy any of it. And there, we, I mean, come on, we know people like that. And they, if you don't have that joy in life, you certainly are not interested in God because God is all about the joy in life and helping us, you know, gain it. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, he does. He gives them over. He gives them over and to their own lusts and desires, and lets them run loose with it. Well, that's that, and that's that, there. You go. That's your description of hell. <laughs> Other comments, questions. All right, let me close this in prayer, and you all can go find your Christmas cards or whatever cookies <laughs> or people that you need to. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you give us hope, not a blind hope, not a hope of hope, but real hope because there's confidence in you and that you give us confidence. You've done the work to give us confidence in that hope. And that hope is not just some fleeting thing. It's an expectation. We expect it's going to turn out this way because you've said so. It's a guarantee based on your track record, not on anything that we do. Lord, we thank you for that as we celebrate this season where you come and prove the very hope that we have. In your name we pray, amen.